Finally, I'm back in the open air and take a deep breath of sea air, busy licking my wounds. The last two hours have been spent dressing for the evening ceremony. And above all, counting the wounds, contusions, strains, burns, and bruises that the day has left us. The typhoon's tent has turned into a kind of infirmary, wreathed with camphor fumes and a cocktail of nerves and exhaustion. Festival nights on the shores of the crag are a real wonder. The facade of the sunken cave has been tattooed with a great luminescent plankton fresco symbolizing our new moon. The bluish halo illuminates the black waves which, pushed by the tide, swell and cover much of the ribbon of sand. The stalls connected by a network of pantoons on stilts are now floating and swaying slightly, rocked by the effervescent swell that often follows a storm. This evening, the party is on the water as well as on the sand. Dozens of braziers dot the area, reaching the foothills of the beach, which is only rarely submerged during high tides. The lightning reaches every corner of the cliffs that surround our turf. Each crag holds up a torch and places it in the star, a great circle of fire that will burn until dawn. The ribbon of sand glows like a long snake of flames. It's packed with fighters, cooks, fishermen, all the clans except for the squilla come and go between the food stalls, huge tables steaming with food. Each one stops at the corner of a circle, riled up by a fight between two champions from rival families. Among the most famous are the manta rays from the offshore archipelagos. Great allies of King Akuyandi and feared fighters, they exchange information on the changing currents, the warming of the water, and the arrival of large shoals. A few giant crabs from the same family come to muscle in, snapping their crimson claws to challenge anything they can get their hands on. I stroll around dressed in a cape to avoid being seen too early, and so I can enjoy the show a little. The Narwhal clan, which is down from the northern shores, stands apart as it does every year and communicates in its own language. Halfway across the dry ribbon, they stand in the black water like giant megaliths lit by the moon's reflection. Occasionally, one of them opens and closes its jaws to gulp down a mouthful of plankton. The action sends a powerful wave crashing at the feet of the octopus men who compare their warlike movements in the mud with the sea urchins who've been banned from the tournaments for several years. A cry rings out without real conviction. Further on, mugs of liquor rise and dance to the beat of drums, the same ones used in war. The dancers light up the dunes with their moving shadows filtered by the lights. According to the Krog custom, the young moons eat with the matriarchs on the eve of the final event. There's no point in looking for any particular symbolism. The tradition is quite recent, going back a few generations at most. It was introduced by necessity because of the fairly frequent deaths that occur during mandricorn hunts. A special farewell is therefore hosted by and for the matriarchs, disguised as a banquet behind closed doors to avoid being overdramatic. When the meal is over, we'll join Akuyandi on his floating table to raise a cup in tribute to the stars, the elements, and other more hieratic traditions. I'd imagined a hastily prepared meal under an arbor, served on basic tables and benches, a slightly canteen-like and gloomy atmosphere by candlelight, and then anxiety, farewells, doubts, and empty promises. That's also why I wasn't in a great hurry to join our little group. My lack of punctuality is greeted by a few insults from Slick. Hello, time, for fuck's sake! They don't call you turtles for nothing! <laughs> the sooner we're done with this chore, the sooner we're ready to party! No one appears very enthused. 
not even Amanaka, who was probably bothered by the potential absence of his mother. The presence of Queen Kalinga will have a major impact on Shakni's future mental state, as she won't return from her investigation without real answers about Rockin's disappearance. An early return would therefore herald a clear-cut response, not necessarily a positive one, like an absence due to a prolonged battle. No matter which way you examine the problem, Shakni will always see the negatives. So like me, the prince must be hoping for a straight answer by the end of the evening. Here we are in a single file in this avenue of brandished torches, driven by tribal chants in ancestral languages, whose rudiments I have only begun to learn. We walk south along the upper part of the beach for about a hundred strokes until we reach a rocky cliff, straddling the edge of the jungle and the sea. In its midst, a tunnel dug by erosion leads to the Comet Lagoon. The opulence and sophistication which greets us immediately banishes my gloomy projections. The turquoise water glistens because the algae attracts incredible amounts of luminous plankton at this time of year. It's almost as if a blue giant could spring from the depths at any moment. A sumptuous vessel on stilts awaits us. We cross a floating bridge whose edges are elegantly trimmed in silk and mother of pearl before entering the dining circle. The tables are massive and overflowing with dishes, the specialties of each family. The matriarchs run the show, and the pages run back and forth to supply food for the tables. My matriarch is assisted by Gokpe and a dozen volunteers who've been entrusted with preparing a spicy coral stir-fry. I'm not sure whether the others like it, but it's by far my favorite food. The axolotls have come by the dozen, and the one, I guess, is Markella, Shakni's matriarch, is giving orders from a remote pantoon to ensure their specialty from the deep is prepared perfectly. Obviously, she wants to make up for the caste difference that places it, their clan at the bottom of the table when compared to orcs and the turtles, who I regret to say are popular and seen as nobility among the fighters. Their dish is a basic fricasse of small crustaceans that smells amazing and should please Rexes, as the Squilla have a strange liking for seafood with claws. The maternal love displayed by the matriarch of the eels for her youngest seems not surprisingly to put Slick to shame. His clan finishes roasting a quarter of a sea monster that is easily the size of a table. We're sitting in the center of the circle. Around us are the relatives, who are busy discussing the trials and their past experience on the mandricorn hunts, where everybody has an anecdote about a grandfather or a cousin who never came back. After dinner, they'll meet at Akuyandi's table if everyone is still in a good mood, which is far from guaranteed. Slick leans in to Rex's ear. Sometimes I envy you, man, for not having any parents. I have parents. Whatever, you know what I mean. Let's hope it's over soon. Hamanaka, I can't wait to get to your father's table. <laughs> I expect he's got something to say to me. He might have something else in mind. Amanaka nods towards the floating bridge, and I deduce from Shakni's blush that Kalinga Queenkrog is about to emerge from the darkness, accompanied by Naria, the jellyfish warrior. Lent by my great-grandfather, she slips between the tables, or rather the tables move aside and open a path for her. Naria, strange but loved by all, especially by younger generations like us, the jellyfish woman, second bodyguard of the high shaman Jakpa an example for the young, and a formidable tool of war. She's a mascot almost as popular as Sawangi, 
as she makes people laugh, intrigues them, scares them, and above all, makes the clan proud. Kalinga and Narya are back. The news spreads like wildfire. The jellyfish woman follows in Queen Krog's footsteps, waves her many burning filaments, which draw random trajectories and seem to have their own personality. Viscounts entoned, the purple skin, taut over her curving translucent muscles, makes me shiver with heat. She moves calmly towards the royal table, swaying like a child imitating the trot of a young nag. Kalinga sits down and nods to Naria to follow suit. The whole assembly has understood the challenge that will follow the upcoming speech. With only silence and the echoes of the party on the other side of the cliff to welcome her, the queen, known for her bluntness, breaks the ice. Good evening to all the clans and to our young maestrum who are about to take part in the final trial. Before the festivities start, I want to talk frankly with you, Crag, for whom I have enormous respect. Kalinga pours herself a cup of liquor and drinks, then continues. I will leave Naria, who has been helping me search for young Rukan of the Axolotl clan, to bring you the results of this search. Naria stands up to face the assembly with a timid attitude that deceives no one. She's amused by the situation, which confuses me as to her intentions. I, Naria, orphan jellyfish and guardian of the high shaman Jakpa, swear to tell the truth and only the truth. She pauses to gauge the impact of her introduction on the audience and continues. So I escorted Queen Kalinga to investigate the disturbing disappearance of young Rukin a few days ago. He was pretty easy to track. After some searches on the edge of the jungle, the queen found some suspicious footprints that matched the description of the young axolotl. We then took the route that pointed straight to the west and spent a few days looking before we found him. As most of you are aware, he was his usual self and we caught him training in the undergrowth. Some of you may have assumed he'd merely got confused with the lunar calendar and had forgotten the dates of the tests. But I'm sorry to say that this is not the case and the young maelstrom was not surprised to be found. I'd even say he was anticipating such a visit. His speech to the Queen and myself was clear, suggesting that it had been prepared. Rukin had decided to quit the event. He was also not at his best. He was injured, covered in contusions and bruises. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it looked like Rukin had been in a fierce battle a few days before. The weight of the revelation is as welcome as an adult monkfish being slapped on the table. Uproar ensues and Naria is good enough to let those involved digest the information for a few seconds before continuing. I then understand that even greater revelations are to come. I also see a strange glint in Kalinga's eye. Not by chance did the queen choose to let Naria speak in her steed. She scans the room, and a thought comes to me. Someone here is involved in this case. When the uproar subsides, the jellyfish speaks again. 
Rukin confessed to fighting a patrol of Adalar sentinels that had ambushed him during training. He then realized that he was too weak for the trial, as he put it. So he took the decision not to jeopardize the team, well aware that Rexis from the Squilla clan was available on the reserve list. The Axolotl camp is getting restless. Are you sure it was an Adlar? If that's indeed the case, there's no way the Axolotls can stay put! And we'd be very offended if the Grand Clan failed to back our revenge! These dogs are coming to our land to attack our young hosts! Cries Markella, the Axolotl chief. Queen Kalinga's orders are that nothing be done until the investigation is complete, because she has a few doubts. And how can you have any doubts? This is yet another move by King Akwiyagi! This passive will ruin our clan! I'll say it one last time, but if you don't respond tonight, you're in big trouble! A few axolotls are already standing. They scan the assembly, torn between offense and aggression. They are hanging on Markella's decision because they can't even imagine how things will turn out if the queen doesn't calm things down. It's true that it's unwise to engage with the Oxalotls in such a scenario. For while it may not be the most prestigious of clans, it's certainly the one with the greatest pride and above all, the greatest number of warriors. The queen stands. It wasn't the Adlar who attacked Rukin. Are you mocking us, Kalinga? Dressing me in that tone in public could make things difficult for everyone, Markella, from the Axolotl clan. If you don't wind your neck in and let me finish, I'll be forced to take your next interruption as a threat. Is that really what you want? Markella backs down, bites her purplish lips, and signals to the Axolotls to return to their places. The queen pauses a few moments too long to show her affront and then continues. For my part, I deplore my husband's pacifism and believe if we could go to war with the Adlar for this reason, I wouldn't have gone to all this trouble. But firstly, he's still in charge. And secondly, I'm positive the Adlars did not attack Rukin. I didn't believe it myself when Gakpe told me about the clan's problems a few weeks ago. Get ready for big changes, Ark. The Krog are doing badly were his words to me. But after the Queen's intervention, I could see things more clearly. The fact that she was going publicly against the King and the peaceful path he has decided to take are evidence of the live issues that are plaguing the clan. This is also why I decided to lead the investigation in person, to find tangible evidence and to put Aquiandi's back to the wall in the face of these facts. But if it wasn't the Adlars, then who could have attacked my son? I've got a strong feeling that the culprit's much closer than we might think, according to the clues I've been able to gather. So I must ask you to be quiet and give me a moment to inspect the assembly. I'd heard about the exercise that Kalinga was about to carry out. From what we've heard, she often operates behind closed doors when dissecting reality, and very few Krog have witnessed this ability. Her tentacles have risen, and float in the air around her head, the pupil of her eyes flattening and stretching into a black rectangle on either side of her iris. She scans the astonished faces. Her eyes scan clothes, cutlery, food, and absolutely everything around us like a torch 
which is able to read the souls of objects, people, and things. From my vantage point, I can see her lips moving and manage to decipher a few words. Adelar, no arrows, contusions, blue fists, trials, participants, three years waiting, relentless efforts, exploits. A few seconds pass and the tentacles fall back down on her shoulders. Her pupil returns to normal. She encrosses her legs, leans on the armrests of the chair, and stands up to face the assembly. As you know, I'm the best tracker in the clan, and never miss the slightest detail. Rookin's injuries were not consistent with a fight with Adlar Sentinels, let alone trappers. The assembly suddenly erupts in an excited hubbub. She waits for the tensions to subside and resumes. Sentinels use thrusters and bows. And the Adlar, however primitive and savage, usually fights with a spear or a needle. I looked at Rookin's wounds as I treated him. None of his injuries appeared to be caused by an Adlar weapon, mostly bruises and fractures that were more consistent with a tavern brawl than a skirmish with trained soldiers. And the location of the damage followed a logic of its own. None of the blows were on vital points and were inflicted by a single warrior using his fists and only his fists. It was when he identified the location of the fight that my doubts were confirmed. There were no footprints leading to an Adlar trail. The ground had been churned up. And if I combine that with the dirt I found on Arukin's fingernails, then it's easy to see he was lying. The question is why? And that is the question I just answered a few seconds ago. Why would Rickon lie? Markella doesn't flinch, but I can tell she's about to lose it. Kalinga ignores her and speaks again. Basically, Rookin fought a duel, which he hid from us. As I observe the assembly, I linger on the attitude, the unconscious actions, the vibrations and mimics that make up the gestures of your people. As I recall how Rookin had mysteriously left the trial, my gaze instinctively turns to the participants in the trial. That's when I finally put the pieces of the puzzle together one by one, and I can't help but be intrigued by one person in particular whose clan is known for producing the best pugilists in Crag history. Her gaze leaves no room for hesitation and lands on my neighbor. I could have given him the benefit of the doubt with this simple reasoning, but when I add the truly fortuitous presence of the fifth member at the trial and the efforts and risks taken by him to carry his team as far as possible, something I've deduced from the fresh bandages on his hands, the recent wounds, and the missing teeth, all those details, when put together, give me some idea of what may have happened. Do you have anything to add to the story? Rexus of the Squilla clan? You, who suddenly reappeared. You, who spent three years waiting for the trial. You, who take colossal risks to lead your team out of peril, despite being booed by the whole clan. Behind me, a tumult of overturned chairs, shattered glass, and fallen tables is not long in coming. Markella, the Brotherhood, and even the pages jump up and down and leer at the Squilla like a pack of hungry dogs. Shackney is taken aback and looks towards Rexus, who is staring at his plate. He prepares his words. 
Amanaka has already put himself in the way, and Slick has followed him by instinct. But the former's massive size and latter's reputation as a tough guy don't seem to discourage the axolotls, who are already forming an arc. The system is well known and feared by those who frequent inns and are used to your regular brawls. Kalinga, well-versed in this kind of dispute, immediately takes control, and her voice thunders until it's lost in the cliffs. Nobody move! It's time for the Squilla to speak! Rexes lets a few seconds pass as he pushes scraps of food around his plate. He chooses his words carefully, and then his ironic and icy voice breaks the tension. I promised Rookin I'd keep my mouth shut, and that's why I've kept quiet about recent events. I had no desire to be blamed for this absence, as the clan already had enough reasons to hate me. Now my back's against the wall. I'm forced to break my word, which I'm not very happy about, but it seems the situation demands it. Speak up, you creepy squealer! As you all know, I've been applying for the trial unsuccessfully for three years now, but I've still trained regularly since my promotion to Typhoon to keep up my skills in the hope of being one day selected. The day finally came, and I owe this opportunity, which is my greatest ever, to Rookin of the Axolotl clan. And for that, I will be forever grateful. I know the clearing you found him in very well, because that's where I isolate myself all year to perfect my fighting techniques. One of my exercises consists of punching great old trees. One morning, I came across Rooking in this clearing. He was also punching trees with his own technique, and his blows were quite remarkable. He then offered me a challenge. He who cuts down a tree first wins, was his proposal. What he didn't know was that I can smash a trunk with one punch, whereas he needs about four or five. Faced with his defeat, he got all riled up and challenged me to single combat. He said, not bad, Squealer. Either I'm weak or you're some kind of heavyweight. We just have to fight to find out. And to spice things up, if I lose, I'll give you my place on my clan's honor. I won't allow my weakness to weigh my sister down in the star trial. That's what he said, word for word. You can guess what happened next. I won the fight and he wished me good luck. several times during the trial, and sacrificed his hands. That's no small thing. And as unpleasant as this truth may seem to you, do you really dare question the Queen's assumptions, which have turned out to be correct so far? The Prince is right. If I've given so much of myself, it's to honor the opportunity the Rookin gave me. With all the esteem I have for him, I swear on my blood that I'll watch over his sister until the trials are over. I also swear that my debt to him will continue until it's paid. It's a debt of honor between my clan and his, and the Squilla will be in debt to the Axolotl until they've paid their dues. The tension gradually subsides until Kalinga decides that this is the right time to declare the case closed, so dinner can finally begin. The meal is enjoyed in a strangely relaxed atmosphere, and I suspect my matriarch has seasoned our dish 
at the last moment with some mysterious seaweed, great for calming the spirit. We leave the table one by one to return to the madness of the party. This time, we have an appointment with the king. On the way back, I linger back and see the old inn, the scale barrel, where Uncle Gakpe taught me the art of astral fortune telling when I was young. I take advantage of the darkness to escape from the group and decide to have a quick drink before the ceremony, which is shaping up to be an auspicious one. I cover my head with my hood myself and enter the sweaty, dried-out, boozy furnace of an inn. I spot Robbie, the old dad, heckling from behind her musty bamboo counter, handing out goblets while she prepares bowls of macerated seaweed fry. The shark table at the back! Just make sure you don't give them any seaweed. She yells at her little assistant, a clownfish who's sweating profusely. And get away quick! I don't want to have to recruit a new server, if you know what I mean. The little clownfish rushes between the sticky tables and wanders to the table of the so-called white ogres. He puts the dish on the table and leaves as he arrived. The Finns thank him politely, and I ask Robbie to tease her server, just for fun. When she recognizes me, I tell her not to reveal my identity, if she doesn't want to lose her eyes. And I discreetly stick the needle in the right side of my skull. My hearing has now improved tenfold, and I decide to spend the time doing something I love, spying in bits and pieces on people praising us, and especially on drunken conversations. As I sip my second cup, I think I hear something interesting. I heard they caught the guy who threw the dead fox at Rexy. I sacrilegious tonight, and it's gonna be bloody. Without skipping a beat, I leave and head for the central beach. The king's table is easy to spot, a floating wood installation at the heart of the action. A crowd of braziers and blue plankton lanterns illuminate the structure, which reminds me of a large flattened walnut shell. Such a device was chosen more because of Akuyandi's mass than any pretentious fantasy. Amanaka is already seated with his father, mother, and younger brother, Romanto, at the center of an arched table with the entire guard. Walruses and Sawangi eels are having a friendly chat. And then there's Slick, who looks like he's about to fall asleep. Jakpa and Gakpe are side by side, escorted by the dark shark, Iwobi, as well as Naria, who has returned to her place. There are so many axolotls that they've had to be squeezed into two rows of benches. Apart from Shakni, who received more support than humiliation, none of them seem to be cheered by the recent confession and the party in general. Axolotls are sensitive and particularly hate being called weak. When it comes to the defeat of one of their best heirs, they can become unruly and they don't need much of an excuse if they have something to prove. That's what Iwobi, the shark man, seems to think too, his hand on the handle of his long sword. Finally come the Rexes. The poor guy's hands are totally bandaged and he can't eat properly. He's sitting next to Amanaka and seems content to sit with the last of the talkers. 